What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All of the Above Podcast Extra. I'm Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, and I'm here with Jeffrey Garrett. And of course, we drop these passing periods in between our full episodes, and we drop these exclusively for those of y'all that listen on your podcast streaming apps, because our full episodes, of course, are video shows that we put on the YouTubes, as well as your podcast apps, and um, those take a while to edit. So in between those full episodes, we, we take this passing period of time to talk about stories that maybe didn't make it into any of our full episodes. And Jeff, man, it is, it is May 1st. It is the beginning of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and it is um, four or five weeks to, to the end of the school year. Not that I'm counting exactly four weeks for me. Um, we're getting there, man. We're getting there. How are you doing on this lovely spring day? Oh, man. Well, I'm doing well. It is also, it's May Day. Um, so it shout, is. Out, shout out to all of our, um, you know, labor partners in the world. Um, Here you go, you communist, <laughs> you Marxist. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I think I've said this before, Manuel, but, uh, you know, they call Martin uh, a communist. They call Fannie Lou Hamer a communist. They call Ella Baker a communist. So so if I'm a communist like them, then uh, where do I sign up, uh, Manuel? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but happy May Day to all of the, uh, the workers of the world, everybody uh, unified and justice for for working people and immigrants and the many sections of our society who make things run, you know? Indeed, indeed. And shout out to you educators out there, especially, particularly you teachers who have recently gone back to in-person instruction. I know that a lot of the folks, Jeff, who who watch our show or listen to our show, um, a lot of them work in California and a lot of California districts, such as my own, have very recently transitioned to in-person instruction. And I think for my district, we don't call it hybrid. I think we're calling it concurrent. I don't know, there's different different words for it, but um, I got to shout out Ms. Riley up in SAC because I think she, she described it best as, um, Zoom school in front of a live studio audience because that's essentially what it is. <laughs> nice. We have some some kids in the classroom watching us through uh, through the computers still, and most of my classes are are still most of my students I should say are still doing the remote thing. So I'm doing the the Zoom schooling, but I have a couple kids in the classroom, and it's, it's been great to see them. It really has been actually. Um, but yeah, shout out to you teachers who are as we face the, the end of the school year, having to reinvent your practice again by learning how to do the online and in-person thing at the same time with only four or five or six weeks left. So shout out to y'all for sure. Yeah, man. Jeff, how's that part been going for you as far as, cause you work in a district that recently went back. How's that, how's that transition been so far? Yeah, so I do. I work uh, with schools in Los Angeles Unified, um, which, uh, which has been in a process of reopening for hybrid instruction um, over the last few weeks, frankly. Um, so two weeks ago, it was like a pilot group of elementary schools, 50 elementary schools. Then uh, one week ago was all the elementary schools, and then just this past week was all the secondary schools too. So everybody's open for for physical uh, school now. And I was at uh, one of our our high schools um, all week, and um, it was it was um, 
in the beginning, I have to say, it was like it was weird, Manuel, to be around people yeah. again. And I, was, I was like, yeah. you're you're not just a little box on the screen. You're like a whole person. <laughs> like I forgot what yeah. this was like. Um, and and then quickly, I got over the just sort of social awkwardness of like of it. But um, and really enjoyed it, man. Just uh, first of all, not sitting down all day. Um, like I've been sitting so much for the last year. It's crazy, man. And uh, it was just nice to be like moving and standing. Um, and then, you know, seeing, as I would say, especially the ninth graders was just adorable because, you know, you sort of forget that even though it's whatever, mid, late April, uh, for them, is their first day of school, you know, and like they don't know where yep. to go. They're like, um, I don't know where my room is. Can you tell me where, like, where to yeah, go? Man. You know, on this big high school campus. And, um, and you know, a couple of the kids, you know, you see them show up and they got that the shiny new backpack that like hasn't been used, you know, because yep. they, they threw away the middle school one and they got a, a nice high school one that's yeah, never man. been used until this week. So, um, you know, so stuff like that, that was just uh, a good reminder of why, you know, why, why we enjoy the work, right? Um, so seeing yeah. kids and teachers and families and stuff, just so much fun. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, numbers are small still. Um, definitely the overwhelming majority of families are choosing to stay virtual right now, at least in high school. Um, right. I think a little less so in elementary, but um, but yeah. It was, it felt good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't teach freshmen, but seeing freshmen in the hallways trying to figure out what's what and where's this, where's that. And one of our counselors, she has like a giant sign in the hallway outside her office. It's, it's I'm Dr. Gonzalez, I'm one of your counselors. And it's just so cute and so great. And it's just like, oh, this really is like the first day of school. Like yeah. this, like it really felt like the first day of school. Actually, it felt like it like twice because we had like two different cohorts coming yeah. on different days or whatever. <laughs> but um, but it definitely was like the it was it was really just strange, like being in person with people with like, you know, groups of people and it feeling like the first day of school, even though it's spring and we're like actually counting down toward the end of the school year. Just really, really bizarre. Still kind of awkward in the sense of like when I see someone who I had as a student last year and haven't seen them since before and it's just like wanted to like dap them up or give them a hug or whatever, but it's still like, okay, social distancing and all that. Like it's still kind of awkward and I don't expect the the awkward nature of it to to fade away anytime soon, but it is good to see people and it's, it's definitely great to be away from my like my home office situation and be able to like walk around the classroom at least a little bit, although I'm not, you know, obviously can't walk near any student who's there in person, but just be able to like be away from the home office setup and get back to my real comfort zone has been really dope, really dope. Yeah. So yeah. So again, shout out to all y'all teachers and other educators and, and parents too, who are, you know, continuing to try to navigate such a strange, strange world where you're also working and you have kids who might be in person, might be remote, maybe, you know, who knows what. So yeah, shout out to all y'all. And, um, and yeah, so Jeff, I mean, can't, can't help but notice that there are ongoing, ongoing headlines and debates around what teachers can and can't or should or shouldn't be saying um, as it relates to things such as um, Black Lives Matter in this case. So we want to talk about a story that, that wasn't in our last episode. And Jeff, maybe you could break it down for us. But, you know, as the 
the world continues to march forward to who knows what the future is going to look like with this uh, pandemic, not pandemic schooling and what have you. We still have some sort of traditional debates that have been around for a long time, but have sort of taken a new a new look in recent years around what teachers are allowed or or should be able to say or do or or signal in their own classroom. So why don't you break down this uh, this story that we're talking about today? Yeah. Well, uh, man. Well, this is a fascinating one, um, and in so many ways, and it is it's one of those stories that you you read about, you hear about, and you're like. I'm sure crazy stuff like this happens all over the world, but I can't help but think, like, only in America <laughs> does this kind of thing happen, Manuel. So, uh, and for, especially in the states that this that's particular what story I'm saying. comes from. It's so perfect. Like, if you hired, you know, like, if you hired, like, um, Spike Lee or Ryan Coogler to, like, make uh-huh. a, to create a fictional story. Uh, that was like the perfect encapsulation of racism in America and how it intersects with schools. They couldn't come up with something better than this. Well, I'm, I'm just... You are I'm, correct. I'm sure. Okay. So, uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out um, to Sydney Bowles from NPR, which is um, where we originally encountered this story. It's been widely covered in other media as well. Um, but here's, here's the breakdown. So, in the lovely state of Florida... Okay, one of the uh, former Confederate states. Um, uh, you know, people sometimes forget that Florida is a bastion of the <laughs> of the Confederacy. Uh, but this story takes place in Jacksonville, Florida, at uh, uh, the hallowed institution that is Robert E. Lee High School <laughs> in Jacksonville. Okay, Jeff, I um, feel like you're making that up. <laughs> That can't really be the name of the school I, for this racist story. Oh, it is story. the name of the school. The, a school that was racially segregated for whites only until 1970, until the 1971-72 school year, okay? So until 50 years ago was racially segregated like Jim Crow segregated, right? Um, that's still mm. to this day called Robert E. Lee High School. Um, but is Maybe today, there's a different Robert E. Lee. What like what are the the school colors or the the mascot? Because oh, there right. this might not be that Robert E. Lee. This might be a different Robert E. Lee. Uh, yeah, no, it's that Robert E. Lee, and the school colors are blue and gray. Okay, and their school mascot is the Generals. Okay, so uh, it is it is as crackery as you think it is. <laughs> well, and it I, is I, I that use Robert E. Lee. Yes, I yes. use that word with all intended. Uh, meaning and depth (laughs) and, yes, and intentionality. Um, So the blue and gray generals of Robert E. Lee High School in Jacksonville, Florida, former state of the Confederacy, okay, is today a school that is 70% black, all right? And um, that school you may have perhaps heard of before because it has been the home of a rather interesting um, student organization called the EVAC movement. Now, the EVAC movement is, um, is run by a teacher there named Amy Donofrio, who uh, is an English teacher and was co-founder of the EVAC movement, which was, in, a, in essence, a class that then became a sort of club that then became more of like an extracurricular activity as it uh, was kind of marginalized from the school. Um, specifically uh, targeting uh, black 
male youth um, and youth of color generally who have been, uh, you know, sort of deemed at risk uh, within the school system um, as a way to like build community, provide supports for them and hopefully kind of derail the, the sort of school to prison pipeline inertia of the system for those students. Um, they kind of rose to some national prominence um, in the, the tail end of the Obama administration, um, being invited to the White House to meet Obama, being featured in the, in the New York Times and Good Morning America, uh, and um, really becoming uh, a, you know, a very celebrated example of what schools thinking more creatively about how to connect with and support youth that are considered at risk and turn them into what they're, what they're naming at hope um, youth. So, um, so Amy Donofrio was just recently placed on administrative leave by the district, she, or administrative reassignment, I'm sorry. So she's now working at you know, some district office um, pending an investigation, which happened after the district tore down a sign she had had above her classroom door for several months that said Black Lives Matter. And the backdrop of this in the school is one of her former students had been killed by the local sheriff. Um, of course, the, the national racial reckoning that's taken place over the last year um, caused a community uh, uproar, as it did in many cities, including a movement to rename Robert E. Lee High School, which has been met by lots of racist backlash, including white folks saying crazy stuff like Jesus said slaves should obey their masters and, you know, older white folks in the community talking about, you know, these people are coming in here to destroy our culture and our way of life and all the usual Confederate defense sort of things that the people are used to hearing. Um, so this is the, the, the political backdrop of this. They removed the Black Lives Matter sign. Amy Donofrio puts up a sign that says, you know, the school administration took down the Black Lives Matter sign that was here, which is both kind of petty and also I kind of respect it. And, uh, and after that, um, she was placed uh, you know, under investigation and reassigned. Um, there's been a major petition with, you know, something like 15,000 signatures to try and reinstate her. But Manuel, this is a crazy story. <laughs> so much going on. Um, and of course, happening in the larger context of Continue, you know, the conviction of Derek Chauvin, the continued violence of police that we're seeing all over the country. <sighs> so much, man. So much. Uh, tell, tell me what you think here about this story. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there is a broadening, I guess, I hate the phrase culture war. I don't think that is the right connotation, but it seems that a lot of the discussion around what teachers are teaching, how teachers are teaching, um, the right-wing attacks on certain academic areas such as ethnic studies, the bad faith arguments around critical race theory and it being divisive, um, the conversations around so-called council culture and, and changing the names of place or taking down Confederate monuments, and um, this idea, this like right-wing lie that teachers are indoctrinating students and are, you know, Marxist agents trying to do this and do that and tear apart America. Like all that seems to be, it almost feels like it's broadening. And I really feel for teachers, in this case, this particular teacher 
it seems to me based on the information that she absolutely positively is is willing and able to handle this fight and has huge support from community members, from families, from students. But I really worry about other teachers, especially ones who are new to the profession or don't quite have the support around them who see things like this and that scares them out of whatever intention they have of helping students learn truthful American history, helping students analyze um, social structures and, and analyze their place in society and build bridges with other communities and interrogate race and racism through um, through American history. I, I really think stories like this probably dissuade a lot of teachers from doing that, even though they want to do that, because I mean, look at what this teacher is facing. And this is for a Black Lives Matter sign. And at a school that is predominantly black, at a school where um, one of her own students was killed by a deputy, at a school in a district um, where another high, at another high school in that same district, Jordan Davis was um, murdered for playing his music too loud. And, you know, this is the, the trauma that the students in this area are, are facing day to day, the racial violence that they're facing day to day. And here's a teacher who says, you know what, my classroom is going to be a place where you could come and safely process and reflect and, and build community and discuss what's happening. And she's being targeted for that, like targeted on in parent Facebook groups and now removed from her classroom for that. It's, it's really, really troubling. It's really, really scary. As much as folks like to talk about freedom and free speech and democracy and all these things, like this is the the absolute opposite of that. Like this is political pressure to shut down any discussion around race, any discussion around racism, any discussions around oppression. Like this is exactly what you see throughout history in countries that are fascist, countries that are totalitarian, countries where any sort of dissent is severely punished. That's exactly what's happening here. Yet the folks doing it are claiming, as always, that like, you know, they're the ones that are for free speech. They're the ones for First Amendment. They're the ones for democracy. And it's it's just to see the hypocrisy here is just, um, it's enraging, honestly. But myself as a teacher, as a classroom teacher, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't very, very cognizant and very, very aware of the reality that like anything from a poster in the background of my Zoom to, you know, my statements during class, like any of that can one day be fodder for these um, Facebook groups who want to target public schools and target the teachers in them. I mean, it's scary stuff. And it feels like it's getting worse in the sense that organizing against particular teachers or against particular schools is a lot easier now because of the online element of it. So when we look at how well organized the opposition to the ethnic studies model curriculum became um, with regards to the critical race theory part of it, I mean, it was very well organized in the end to really get thousands of, of, of comments in there against critical race theory seemingly out of nowhere, just because of the ability for some certain folks, especially online, to really rally their audiences and and get something going. So this is neither the first nor the last case that we're going to see of a teacher being targeted for showing support for her Black students and showing support for Black Lives Matter. And I mean, it's scary stuff, man. I'm not going to lie. It's scary stuff. I know there's a lot of educators out there. There might be some who are listening right now 
who think like, bring it, like whatever, bring it. I'm not, I'm not going to hold back. I'm not, I'm not tripping. I'm, I'm up for the fight. I would argue most educators aren't. Most, most edu- educators, I mean, between their own families that they have to worry about, between like just their own peace of mind, their own sanity, stuff like this is, is not something that they are ready to fight and ready to like be in the limelight for. So I think a lot of teachers out there probably hold back a lot when it comes to expressing support for their, not just in this case, in this case is a Black Lives Matter flag, but uh, you know, we've seen similar stories of, of teachers being penalized for, um, for signs in their Bitmoji classes supporting uh, supporting immigrants. You know, I think there was a teacher in Texas, she had a sign that said, uh, no human is illegal or something. And they, tr- they came after her for that. So, um, Man, it's just scary stuff. It's it's really scary stuff. I don't know. What are your yeah. thoughts? I agree that it is scary stuff for sure. And there's a um, there's a certain uh, dystopianness to to it, right? Um, and I will say uh, a detail of the story that I didn't mention earlier that we probably should is that uh, Amy Donofrio is suing, is being represented by the Southern Poverty Law Center, and yep. is suing the district, uh, alleging that they have violated her First Amendment rights. And what's interesting about that is uh, this case is bringing up a bit of a fundamental tension between some existing legal precedent that says that actually public employees are some of the people who are most limited in their ability to exercise free speech because they're legally generally thought of as folks who are representing the state when they are speaking at work, right? right. And, and because of that, they're not necessarily free to, um, to say whatever they want to say. They are rep- they're speaking on behalf of the state, so they need to speak on behalf of what the state you know, or the organization of the state wants to say. But the state of Florida happens to have a law that protects speech at school and that says that uh, district school boards, administrative personnel, and instructional personnel are prohibited from taking actions, including but not limited to um, entering into agreements or infringing upon uh, the the rights or freedoms afforded to uh, school staff by the First Amendment of the United States Constitution unless they get written consent to do that, right? So right. this is an interesting potential clash between, you know, uh, sort of our typical understanding of the limits of speech on public employees versus Florida's actual law that says you can't do that. So honestly, I'm very curious to see, like, legally how this turns out and yeah. also wouldn't be surprised if in crazy right wing legislator Florida, they change this law immediately <laughs> to, right. uh, if she wins. Um but uh, but it, they it's will. you know absolutely it's a, yeah yeah it's a fascinating I mean they're already you know it, that assumes Manuel that they're not busy uh, restricting voting rights they're they're very occupied right now um, so you know uh, let's yeah. not forget that but um, but yeah it's a fascinating kind of legal issue and then also it is yet again the complete uh, sort of white supremacist mythology world where we are treating a flag that says Black Lives Matter as the, a type of threatening speech that say a, you know, a swastika or a right. Confederate flag, right? Um, 
would have, right? And we're saying like, well, this is one position, which is like, we should have slavery and oppression. And this is another position. Black lives have some amount of worth and value, right? And, um, and therefore both of these are like, uh, you know, attempts to introduce political indoctrination in the school or something like that, right? Um, and I think we just have to fight this fight as educators to say that actually not all speech is valid speech, that there, there is a moral stance that is inherent to any type of responsible education that doesn't treat the Confederacy and the Black Lives Matter movement as you know, opposite ends of a legitimate debate, right? That one of these is a, is a platform for the advocacy of oppression and slavery and genocide, and the other is a reasonable moral position to take in a debate, right? Um, and so, you know, one of those types of speech is actually, I would argue, should be subject to regulation and limitations. Uh, which, which would be the placement of Confederate flags and the promotion of slavery and genocide, right? Um, and not a position that says, let's uplift the value and worth of a particular group of people. And so I worry that like what's getting lost in this is the fact that this is a false equivalency. This, they're framing this as, a, as an equivalent uh, type of conversation. This is a false equivalency, um, this is an obviously reasonable opinion to express that's being regulated because of the racism that's embedded in this uh, particular school's community context, as it is in many other parts of, of this country. Yeah, I mean, you are correct about that. And that reminds me all the way back to our very first All of the Above episode, our very first episode ever, our pilot episode, if you will. And um, Akita Kasein-Long uh, mentioning that like when it comes to so-called politics in the classroom and political speech and this and that, we got We have to stop allowing folks to do what you just said, which is to you know conflate one thing as being equal to the other. So to conflate Black Lives Matter as being the equal but opposite um, take on the Confederacy or on slavery. But you know, they're, they're, when it comes to matters of the value of one's own humanity and own dignity in these things, like that's not a, a debatable thing. And Black Lives Matter is not what I would consider to be political in any kind of way. It's not partisan in that sense. You know, a lot of times, when most most of the time when folks uh, say something is political or not, what they really mean is partisan. And, and Black Lives Matter is something that should not be considered partisan in any kind of way because this is simply an expression of the dignity and worth of Black lives in this case at a school. In this case, and it shouldn't matter this part, but still it's worth pointing out that the school is majority Black. The school has um, students who have been victims of police violence and this statement here is not political in that sense. It's a show of support for your students, which is, I would say, um, the number one task of teachers is to support the little ones in front of you and help them grow into loving and intelligent human beings that can take on the problems of our world, the problems of our society that we have laid before them. So there is that. But my concern, though, I mean, legally, in the legal sense, yes, this is messy. This this is messy because yes, there's you know there's several. Tons of restrictions on teacher speech. Um, teachers, public school teachers, in this case, are certainly have certainly been ruled in different cases to be um, representatives of the government, and our, our our free speech, our First Amendment protections are severely limited. And shout out to my education and law professor, the late great Stuart Beagle. Uh, rest in peace to Brother Beagle. He, in his class, told us like freedom of expression for public school educators is 
particularly complex. Like when it comes to students, there's there's the the Tinker case, and there's you know real clear cases um, outlining the rights of of you know the student newspaper, for example, and this and that. But when it comes to teachers, especially in this digital era, where teachers are you know late night in bed on their phone scrolling through and like you know liking a post or or writing something on Twitter or Facebook, like you know the realm within within which teachers are free to express themselves there yet be reprimanded for what they express online um, because they're teachers and because they are the face of their school, the face of of uh, public education in their area. Like there's a lot there. And in this case, I am concerned about the outcome here because I can assume there are teachers out there who would say, well, she's able to uh, have a Black Lives Matter flag in her classroom. I should be able to put the Blue Lives Matter or blue thin blue line flag, whatever you want to call that flag in my classroom. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I think this district here had a case where a football team was running out onto the field with the, the thin blue line flag. And they restricted that school from doing that because that flag is an impressive flag for lots of reasons. So I don't know. I'm concerned that even though Black Lives Matter shouldn't be conflated with other forms of political stances, it is. It just, it is. It, that, I think that ship has sailed. And I don't know. I, I can't express enough and I can't find the words right now to express just how worried I am about the future of teaching when we have so many attacks on our profession and so many attacks on our students. So much so that like everything from being able to teach an honest history of America to being able to have a poster up in your room showing support and love for a particular marginalized group, all that stuff is under attack all at the same time. And it's just, uh, I think, a sign of things to come. And I'm just worried. I'm really worried about it. And I'm exceedingly worried about the stance of school board members and district leaders across the nation when they get flooded with thousands and thousands of emails from angry parents because they were rallied up on Facebook. And those district leaders, I'm just worried that they are going to bow to or continue to bow to that pressure and remove teachers like Amy uh, Donofrio. And it's, it's not looking good, man. It's just not looking good. Yeah, I hear you 100% on that worry, Manuel, and I think it is um, in in this hour where we are the year after, we're coming up now on the one-year anniversary of the, you know, insane murder of of George Floyd that really sort of, you know, was sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back, um, you know, coming off of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and, you know, and thousands of other people over centuries. Yeah. Um, but that was sort of the straw that did it, right? Um, right. And I think the reality is the, um, the cover that the mass uprisings provided last year of, of just sheer power, right? To say like, oh, there's millions of people who are willing to risk police brutality, to risk being gassed, by, uh, you know, by these barbarian police in the streets, um, made space for people to push in, you know, sort yeah. of less public ways, like putting up Black Lives Matter flags in their classrooms or in schools or pushing to change the name of schools named after Confederate, you know, generals. Um, and I worry that it's hard to sustain that level of mass public movement in the streets that provides, <clears throat> excuse me, that provides that kind of cover. 
And then what starts to happen are these sort of like behind the scenes, school board procedurally sort of things, right? Where all the false equivalencies come out, right? And, and I would argue it's actually not that difficult, Manuel. It's like really not that difficult of a call to be able to look at your Blue Lives Matter flag and say like, actually, that is a flag that is fundamentally about oppression and violence and racism. It has no other purpose and function because police, first of all, are not a, an ethnic group <laughs> in this country. They're not a protected class. Second of all, they are certainly not people who, who have ever been oppressed in any way as a class in this society. Um, and they only use this flag and this symbol to make space for and want to continue the violent oppression of others. And there's, that's just a simple fact. Like yeah. it's not actually even debatable. And that and flag didn't exist until Ferguson, until Black Lives Matter became a thing. Like that flag was a reaction. Exactly. It was a response to the call for um, justice. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. So we pretend sometimes that these are hard calls to make, right? Um, and I would argue, and I would put out there, there's actually only very few hard calls in this equation to make, right? And so an example of a hard call might be if someone were to say, um, you know, put up some flag or symbol of like, um, and I'm just going to pick on this group right now, but say like the Nation of Islam, Right. Mm -hmm. Like there aren't that many organizations, I would say, in our society that both have a serious track record of doing like liberation struggle work and have a serious track record of espousing views that are uh, hateful and oppressive towards other people. Right. And so we can have a complicated conversation about those groups. But most of what we're talking about is not that. Right? There's nothing ambiguous about the Blue Lives Matter flag. There's nothing ambiguous about Confederate symbols. Right? Nothing at all. Um, and we only pretend there is because of the fear, political and, and violence-wise or otherwise, that we have of confronting white supremacy. And I would say now is the time we need courage and we need uh, follow-through from leaders in education to not go down this ridiculous road of false equivalencies and allowing white supremacist mythology to shape the narrative, man. Uh, excuse me. And I believe, and I, I totally empathize with your position of like, look, that sounds well and good, Jeff, but like, I ain't trying to lose my job um, by putting this flag up on the wall um, or, you know, create a bunch of backlash from parents and families by, you know, by having my rainbow flag up or whatever it might be. Um, right. But I, I honestly think this is, this is a time and a moment for educators to continue to push. Um, and I know that's asking a lot of people, especially when I'm not myself in, um, in that position. But I think along with that ask of teachers comes the ask of principals, comes the ask of APs, comes the ask of district staff, school board members to say, no, we're not going to accept the mythology and we're going to push back against it. Yeah, and I agree with that a thousand percent. I feel comfortable and confident in my own school site to do that. I mean, my school district, they one of several that passed a resolution in support of Black Lives Matter. So I feel that if I have a Black Lives Matter poster on the wall, I wore a Black Lives Matter shirt the other day, like that's not a problem because the district itself approved a resolution in, uh, unanimously in support of Black Lives Matter, in support of Black Lives. So if 
my district did that, then why wouldn't I be allowed to show support of my own school board uh, by also supporting that and wearing that? I get that, but it's easy for me to say it in my community context, but I think about those teachers who teach in places where the um, the context and the nature is is very, very different. I think about teachers who are in areas that are super, super Trump supporting areas. And I think about like for them, it must be a lot harder because your principal might not have your back. Your principal might think that Black Lives Matter is some Marxist organization that wants to destroy the American family structure, whatever the hell they be saying out there. And I think about those teachers like I can't, you know, I got a, um, a letter in the mail in old school physical mail the other day that was like my name and address. And on the on the envelope was a photograph of my house. And I for a moment I was like, cause it, you know, it didn't say where it came from. So for a moment, I was just super freaked out. Cause I'm like, what is, you know, and based on my work with ethnic studies at the state, I've received plenty of, you know, messages about myself being whatever, uh, Marxist and all this stuff. And, you know, of course I was in a very well-written Russia Times piece about critical <laughs> race theory and I was destroying America. Um, you know, and they name dropped me there. And, and for, for a moment I was like, am I gonna open this and it's gonna be some hate mail? And they included a picture of my house just to let me know they know where I live. And it wasn't that, of course it was um, a refinancing thing is, you know, refinance rates are lowest they've ever been, whatever, whatever. But, you know, for a moment, I was just like, look, man, this is in this internet age, like this is, it's just different, man. If I lived in some area, if I lived out and I don't want to name a place because I don't want to offend anybody who might be listening from that place. But there are plenty of communities where I'm like, yo, if I lived out there and I really knew I had no support from fellow teachers, from the school board, from my principal, from my neighbors around my stance, around supporting uh, marginalized groups and, and this and that, like, I would be, I would be worried. And then I would think, okay, is it worth it? Not even like, I don't want to lose my job, but more so I don't want to receive the backlash. I don't want anybody to send threats to my house, all that stuff, man. It's just, yes, educators, this is the time. We saw last summer, the most, I would say, diverse look at like massive protests across the nation in support of black lives that we've seen in a very, very, very long time. The coalition of folks supporting not just racial justice, but justice in all forms. The coalition is broad, the coalition is big, and this is the time to really push push for justice and push for support, humanizing education for all groups, absolutely. But I'm not gonna like just pretend that there aren't educators that are in a spot where doing so comes at great personal risk and Shoot, man, it's just tough. It's just tough. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you, man. I hear you. I think um, that's a hundred percent understandable. And and at the same time, this is this is a moment for educators. Um, so, you know, ho hopefully, this discussion offers a little bit of uh, inspiration to those folks who are who are sticking their necks out and. Um, you know, and really fighting a good fight and upholding a, a line of ethics and integrity on this in their teaching and in their classroom and in their school and district um, because it's going to be a fight. It's not going to be, <laughs> you know, just a polite conversation. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what is um, not a fight at all and it's not political at all? It's actually quite. Um apolitical and it has has it's just a great place for all of humanity to come together and not think about politics and not think about power at all and that's um the sports world jeff did you know that sports and, <laughs> and especially in education especially when it comes to um sports programs and, and college athletics and all that um very very not political jeff which is very very great isn't it um 
Let's talk about yeah. that. What yeah, do we got I next mean, week, man? What do we got next week? Yeah, so uh, next week we have just a fascinating guest on the show, man. Um, a lot of folks out there may know of him. Um, he is Dave Zirin, um, who is the sports editor for The Nation magazine, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, um, author of numerous books, got a new one coming out in the fall, going to be called The Kaepernick Effect. Um, looking at you know how uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and the you know sort of um, wave of athlete political speech and activism um, that that we've seen as a result is really impacting society and uh, and vice versa and um, so we're going to dig into some of these fascinating intersections with Dave between sports policy right um, and social justice and kind of how those things come together and function everything from you know, Title IX and gender equity to um, political speech and um, athletes using their platform uh, at the high school and college levels. So it's going to be fascinating, man. Uh, folks are definitely going to want to check that out. It's next Saturday, May 8th, that episode drops. So make sure you subscribe so you can check it out. Yeah. And we should ask them about um, a lot of, you know, a lot of these big cities have big glistening stadiums that cost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, yet their public school system is highly underfunded. So um, we should definitely dip into that too. Um, Jeff, where's he from? Is he not from, he's from Minnesota, right? No, he's from New York, but he went to college in uh, in my home city of St. Paul. Shout out to uh, St. Paul, okay. McAllister College in the house. Cool, cool. Uh, yeah. You know who else is from Minnesota? The... Uh, New new quarterback for the 49ers, Trey Lance, is, ah. is from your neck of the woods there. And um, since since the San Francisco 49ers are the official NFL team of all the above, um, <laughs> facts, not facts, um, yeah, see, I just thought I should point that out. That's that's hilarious. You Did you mean the Minnesota Vikings? I'm sorry. I, I, the audio cut out for a second. Yeah, I'm going to have to edit that part out, uh, the Vikings <laughs> part, that is. Uh, but, folks, that is passing period for this week. Um, we hope you enjoyed. And, of course, our full episodes with guests and all that dope stuff and look at several headlines and shout-outs and all that good stuff come out every other week. So definitely stay tuned for a full episode dropping next week. Last week's episode, of course, was about arts and music education during and after the pandemic with Benoit Shepard. So if you missed that, go back and give that a listen. And, as always, we love y'all. Um, we hope you appreciate the conversations we have on this show. Uh, rate us, review us. All that goes a long way. And, of course, hit us up at AOTAshow.com. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, um, and let us know what your thoughts are around these stories and conversations that we have here. All right, folks. We love y'all. See y'all in a week. Now, get to class. <laughs>